Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today, Bruce Royal continues our series on the Apostle Paul's letters to the church at Corinth. Today, looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 through chapter 6 and verse 11. And now, here's Bruce. Good morning. morning. Pleasure to see you this morning. Pleasure to be able to speak without having one of these things on. Thank you, worship team. Music has a way of, of bringing us into a space of worship, of lifting us up, of allowing the Spirit of God to speak to us and through us, and the worship team has done that magnificently this morning, so I want to thank him for that. If we take our Bibles, our portion before us this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So we'll read 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and then we have some verses into 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that we'll come to. I don't have slides this morning, this is going to be... An old school type presentation. The name of the message is Protection of Holiness. But if you read in your Bible this morning, the portion under 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is called Disorder in the Church. And so, the recognition of disorder in the church is an opportunity for protection of holiness. And so, that's what we're going to look at this morning. So let's read slowly through 1 Corinthians chapter 5, from 1 down to verse 1 down to verse 12. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, of a kind that does not occur even among the pagans. A man has his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit, and I have already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord is present, Hand this man over to Satan, so that the sinful nature may be destroyed, and his spirit saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast that you you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. I have written you in my letter, not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not 
all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In the case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy or adulterer or slanderer or drunkard or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. So that's 1 Corinthians chapter 5. That's the portion we'll look at to start with. So this is what Paul was confronted with. The early church location where Paul had established and planted had its own unique issues and personality that's reflective of the people that were in the midst of that church. At the root, all churches contain people that have and are being transformed by the power of the gospel of Jesus. The issues that Paul is addressing in Corinth in the first century is not unlike the issues that are present in churches in the 21st century. And so, the message of this topic, and it's not what we would call light reading this morning. It's pretty heavy stuff, isn't it? As we read through this. It's universal to all ages to all generations, to all periods in history. Let's examine Paul's response from our reading today and see what we can learn. And what's more importantly to that, what we can apply to our lives and what we can apply to our church. Who's this letter written to? In 1 Corinthians, it's written to the church that's in Corinth. Intended for the elders and the leaders of the church to communicate this message to address the issues of disorder and disunity with church members. Paul provides this very gracious introduction and praise for the church despite the difficulty and despite the the disappointment he must have been feeling by having to write this letter in the first place. He needed to address disorder in the church. That was the heart of what it's about. But in spite of that, Paul lifts the church before God and he says, I'm thankful for it. Paul, in writing, also realizes the maturity of the church will not typically rise above the maturity of the leaders within the church. If allowed for people to choose to do as each person thinks right. As in we read in Judges chapter 17, verse 6, talking about the time of Samson. It says this, In those days Israel had no king, and everyone did exactly as they saw fit regarding that time in Samson. We also see a similar occurrence 
the time when Moses went up on Mount Sinai. And he left Aaron in charge. And we read of Aaron's golden calf experience while Moses was absent. And from those lessons and other lessons in the Bible, we realize that the church's behavior, any gathering's behavior, has the potential to spiral into a sin fest if it's left unchecked. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the elders and the leaders of the 1 Corinthians church are confronted as much as those people who are misbehaving. The role of an elder or a leader is charged with an awesome responsibility to maintain order, to establish principles of behavior that provide for the protection of holiness. The response of looking the other way or hoping that things would improve on their own is in fact a catalyst or it's an enabler that has led to the present situation in Corinth. So Paul is exhorting leaders of the church of Corinth to examine the reality of their church's behaviors and stop the hemorrhaging of sinful behavior. Difficult, very difficult, because they too must take responsibility and accountability for their part in encouraging or allowing the situation to persist. The question is, how will leaders respond? And that's always an opportunity. How will leaders respond? Will they be foolish leaders or will they be wise leaders? Solomon gives us a sense of what wise leaders look like when we look at the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 10 and verse 8 says this, Wise leaders quietly accept criticism. Proverbs 10.8 says, The wise in heart accept commands. The wise leader loves discipline. Imagine that. Loving discipline. Who likes that? But if we read Proverbs chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, because discipline is a tool to further knowledge. 12.15 of Proverbs says, Wise leaders listen to advice. The way of the fool seems right, but the wise man listens to advice. So you almost have to pause and think, take a breath. Take a breath. Relax. Don't respond out of passion or emotion. Take a breath. Be a wise leader. So what is the context of the situation we have today? The issues of importance are on the table are two. Sexual immorality within the church and lawsuits being brought before public courts, which is what 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is about. Both issues are wrapped in the same root problem. It's the downward spiral of each person's sinful behavior wrapped in the lack 
of adequate leadership. For today, I'd like to focus on the sexual immorality portion of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. What is it? The Bible speaks about this topic a lot. Not just here and there, but a lot. It's listed, so first of all, sexual immorality is a general term. It's taken from the Greek pornilia. So we don't have to look too far to look where the term pornography came from. We realize sexual immorality comes from the Greek term pornilia. It's a a general term for all unlawful sexual intercourse. That's what it boils down to. Sexual Sexual immoral people implies that they're living a lifestyle of sexual immorality. We're not talking about some one-off occurrence. We're talking about a lifestyle. Something that's been developed over time and become part of who you are. This is how you behave. This is what you're about. This is how you think. It's listed as part of the sinful behavior we read in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 19. And I'll just read that portion for you. So Paul in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 19 says, The acts of the sinful nature, they're obvious. Listed, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy and drunkenness, orgies, and the like. And so, he's listed there a grouping of things that are termed sinful behavior. It's also listed, sexual immorality is listed first and foremost. And that's true often throughout Scripture. Although the other items in Galatians chapter 5, verse 19, are also a serious offense to God and considered acts of the sinful nature, yet are less obvious and can inaccurately be ranked as less important and therefore not confronted. The fact that these are all listed together as a grouping They need to be treated equally. Yet sexual immorality always seems to get the headlines. Why? Because the acts of the sinful nature regarding sex is one for the most part that cannot be avoided. It's part of our human nature. It's how God designed us. Sexual interaction is how God designed us. If you think about it for a quick second, it's why we're all here. After all, that's what sex does. Yet, sex is a wonderful gift given by a loving God that can and has often been taken out of context, distorted and abused. 
Our topic before us today is the protection of holiness. In the context of dealing with sin, primarily in this chapter, sexual immorality. The specific issue that needs to be immediately confronted is mentioned from verses 1, 5, 1 to 5, 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you of a kind that does not occur even among pagans. A man has his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have been put out of your fellowship, this man who has done this? Even though I am not physically present with you, I am with you in spirit and have already passed judgment on the one who has done this, just as if I were present. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I am with you in the spirit, and the power of the Lord is present, hand this man over to Satan. The specific issue that needs to be immediately confronted from what we read here is a brother. They're talking about a Christian brother in the church is having sexual relations with his mother or stepmother. And they Whoa. I mean, your jaw would drop and hit the table at that thought. And it's not a secret. And it's being tolerated and left unchecked by church members. The label that is applied to this behavior is sexual immorality. Paul describes this particular type of sexual immorality as a kind that does not even occur among the pagans. And so Paul is writing, he's saying, guys, you know what? We've hit an all-time low. We've hit an all-time low here. It's extreme in its distortion of God's intention for healthy sexual, sexual relations. It's extreme in the tolerance of such behavior in the church. And it's also extreme in the immediate need for remedy. And why is that? Because of complacency. Complacency is an awful thing. It says, I'll take care of it tomorrow. It's too hard today. I don't want to do it today. It's hard. I'll do it tomorrow. And that turns into a month of tomorrows and a year of tomorrows, perhaps. So the recommendation is twofold. Always remembering that correction must not be vengeful. It's not like, you're making me angry. Now I'm getting mad. Okay. Now I'm ready to do something. No. It needs to be stepped back and thought about this. How can we approach this in a loving restorative way. So, we have two responses here. We have a, a reactive response and a proactive response. So, let's cover the reactive first. This is after it's happened. First portion of the reactive response is this. Remove the brother from fellowship of church as describing as turning over to Satan. 
the desired effect of this is that the sinful nature might be destroyed. The phrase turning a person over to Satan sounds absolutely horrible. This phrase is interpreted in many ways. We could go home this afternoon, do a Google search of that particular phrase, and you'll get a drop-down of a whole lot of different ways to interpret that. And my intention this morning is not to exhaustively go through those. I intend to share the principle of the interpretation. And it's this. Turning a person over to Satan does sound horrible, yes. Yet, when we think about it, a person who has deliberately decided to disobey God and practice a sinful lifestyle has given themselves over to Satan because they have chosen to follow his ways rather than God's. And it's not a one-day thing. It's something they've pursued over time. Without spiritual support of Christians, this man would be left, with, left alone with his sin and Satan and perhaps the emptiness would drive him to repentance. The sinful nature may be destroyed. The hope that the experience would bring him to God to destroy his sinful lifestyle through repentance, which is simply turning away from sin and turning to God. Facing sin and saying, no more of that, I'm turning my back and I'm turning to God. And that's the direction I'm going. I am repenting. The ministry of the Holy Spirit, we discover in John chapter 14 and 16, says the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin and guilt and righteousness. The second portion of the reactive response is clean up the church of the old yeast of sinful behavior. Yeast has a way of permeating the loaf. You put a little bit of yeast in, next thing you know it's contaminated loaf, and the whole loaf is yeasty. You can't separate it. It just becomes part and parcel of the whole thing. This longer term reactive solution, and it involves everyone dealing individually with the sin culture that the church has enabled. The implication here is that the church eroded in their commitment to be impure and holy before God. Over time, it will take continued dedication and effort to reverse the trend of sinful behavior by, first of all, stopping, saying, enough, I'm stopping this. Secondly, turning to Jesus and saying, that's where I want to be. That's who I want to follow. Not this, you, Lord, and committing to remaining with Christ. It's a picture of repentance. It's a picture of coming back to Jesus through repentance or what we would call confession. Simply confessing. Realizing that people do not change overnight. Requiring much prayer, patience, love, support, and concentrated teaching on the holiness of God. 
This is the same principle that Paul mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28. When he talked about coming before the Lord, the Lord's Supper, he said, the principle is this, a man ought to examine himself before he eats the bread and drinks the cup. For anyone who eats the bread and drinks the cup without recognizing that the, the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment upon themselves. In other words, when you come, he's asking you to examine yourself before you come. It is our responsibility to constantly examine, like a magnifying glass, our hearts and our behavior before God to remove sins through confession, to restore that relationship. Not because he wants to condemn us, because he wants us to be pure and holy before him, the way he's designed us to be. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 is one of the most beautiful verses of the entire Bible. They're all beautiful. But in my mind, today, one is more beautiful, and it's this one. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. All of us, this verse tells us, are capable of sin, and continually do commit sin in our lives. If we say we don't, the Bible says we're a liar. We already know we do. That's the truth. We know that. Romans 3.23 says, We all continually fall short of the glory of God. The key words I take from 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 is, We confess our sins, confessing them, laying them on the table before God, being open, transparent, and truthful. The key word is, He is faithful and just and forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Clean us completely, pure. What an absolute blessing to have the promise that we can be forgiven and purified. Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-four says, declares, Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. The good news of the gospel. It applied to Paul's letter to the Corinthians in first chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It applied to those people. It applied to others and applies to us in the same way this morning. Such is the protection of holiness. Confessing our sins, trusting his faithfulness to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. The evidence of holiness is also demonstrated in the fruit of the Spirit in contrast with living the acts of the sinful nature. And so, this is the proactive response. Rather than reacting after something happens, we can react before, if you know what I mean. Self-control. The protection of holiness is part of the spiritual gift of self-control. It's within the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians 
5.22, listed last. The fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22 are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It is self-control that allows the other items of the fruit to be evident. It's self-control that allows the other items of the fruit to be evident. Self-control is also the wall of protection against the acts of the sinful nature. It is a sense of, in a sense, is a defense in nature, but it's also an offense towards temptation. Defense as it protects the holy nature and conduct. Offensive as it raises its guard against temptation and the allure of following after sin and sinful behavior. Self-control. What does it mean from the Greek? Inkratia, meaning infused or within. Vigor, domination, power and strength. Having great force, but under control. Self-control is the ability to live with restraints. Where does it come from? Colossians chapter 2 verse 9 says, The fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given the fullness of Christ. We have within us the fullness of the deity of Christ manifested in the fruit of the Spirit through the work of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. The Spirit of God working out His gift of self-control leads to the inward working of thought control that protects holiness. Sin always gives birth here. It starts here. It's a thought. It's something that comes into the mind and it's entertained. And once it's entertained, it becomes a little story you tell yourself. And you repeatedly tell that story until it actually becomes appealing. And that appealing story gets put into action. And once it gets put into action, it turns into something that turns into behavior. And behavior has a way of turning into a habit. And a habit has a way of turning into your character. But to bring it all back to the root, it starts here in the mind, as your thoughts. The Spirit of God, working out His gift of self-control, leads to the inward working of thought control that protects holiness. Jesus says, we will be accountable one day for our thoughts, for our attitudes, not only the things we do, the things we think about and entertain. Self-control in reality is an extremely high form of worship because it is a living out of His commandments. It's worshiping God by saying, I will obey I will follow you. My actions will demonstrate that I love you because I'm obeying you. I'm doing what you've asked me to. Not because I feel that you are going to punish me or condemn me, but because of love. Because of gratefulness. Because of appreciation. 
because of who you are. It's a doing act of character in order that all the fruit of the Spirit will be seen in us. Self-control plays a major role in the maturing of the other fruit of our lives. The one, this one, self-control, is needed to make the other eight operational. Self-control is the glue which holds all of life and the harvest of the fruit of the Spirit together. The second proactive response in closing is the Word of God. The offensive part of the armor of God is mentioned in Galatians chapter 6. It says in verse 17, Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And we might say, how can we use the Word of God in a proactive means to fight against sin? By simply asking three questions as we read the Scriptures. By taking the wise response to reading the Scriptures. And what are these three questions? As we read, how can I use this? How can I use this? Everything in Scripture has a purpose. And Scripture has a way of speaking to us in a way that no other book can. Because it's alive, it reads our minds, our thoughts, and it resonates with our spirit. It speaks to us, and we say, how can we use this, Lord? The second thing is, why must I use this? How can I use it? It's speaking to me. Why must I? Because I know if I don't, I know what I'm going to do. I know what I'm going to think. I know where I'm going to go, and that's going to lead to my behaviors. The last thing is, when will I use it? Becomes tactical. Becomes strategic. I've planted a thought within my mind that I'm going to defend sinful thinking with the Word of God. So when that comes up, my mind goes to these thoughts rather than being distracted and going back this way. The second issue that Paul raises is lawsuits among believers in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm out of time, unfortunately, and won't have the opportunity to develop these verses this morning. But essentially, this is what it is. Brothers were taking brothers to court. The problem is similar to sexual immorality. Rather than being rooted in the lust of the flesh of sexual immorality, it is brothers taking brothers to court is rooted in pride and selfishness. Lust says, I want it. Entitlement says, I deserve it. And pride says, I can handle it. Which are all lies. The remedy for the issue of brothers taking brothers to court in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is the same as we've discussed concerning sexual immorality. It's exactly the same. What Paul is bringing to light here, essentially, he says, it's a spiritual battle we live in. And Paul is bringing this to our minds to be ready. Ready for battle. Father, we thank you for your, your word. We thank you, Lord, for what it says to us, how it speaks to us. And we would just pray, Lord, that you would 
put within us the desire to to use the word of God and to use the spirit of God to to be ready and be defensive that we would not fall into the temptation of living in the lifestyle of impurity Lord before you we just commit ourselves to you in the name of Jesus Amen Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you are in the Timmins area or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time.